What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the many worlds of Christmas and holiday traditions. First, I'll have a conversation about the many TV and movie adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Then, we'll speak with author and illustrator team Carolyn and Mark Beener about their snowman books. Our last guest will be librarian and author Laura Kohler to discuss her first published book and other holiday favorites. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around you Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll read one more passage from A Christmas Carol, and we'll hear more about holiday traditions from around the world. But before all that, let's take a peek into my world. If there is one holiday that is fundamentally connected to stories, it would seem that it would be Christmas. Beginning with the story of a little baby born in a stable with only his mother, father, and the animals watching, to the story of the beautiful miracle of only a single container of oil lighting the menorah for eight days, the stories of this season are particularly full of wonder. These beautifully sacred stories are also accompanied by those stories that stem from the joyful imagination— The wonderful thing, however, is that even these imaginary stories carry the types of wonder and goodwill that the stories from which this season is most notably celebrated want to embrace. Look at the Dr. Seuss classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That hard-hearted Grinch learns that the real gift of Christmas is love, something I think that the baby from the stable wants us to learn, too. Another classic, The Polar Express by Chris Van Allsburg, shows us that at the heart of miracles is the ability to believe, something that the eight days of light also convey. That really, for me, is the kind of power story embraces, the ability to see belief and virtue in new ways. And especially during this season, this type of renewal and hope is the thing we all want to embrace. It seems, then, that hope is one of the things that is fundamentally a part of the stories told at this time of year. Look at Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Here there was hope that Scrooge could change, or the three ghosts would never have visited him in the first place. Clement Moore's classic poem, The Night Before Christmas, of which my favorite version is the one illustrated by Jan Brett, captures the wonder and belief of hope in things that we may not be able to see, but we can still believe in. But it also seems for me that one of the greatest hopes for stories of Christmas is that a beautiful story well told and shared is one of those things that can bring us together to share the joys of the season. So no matter if your story is the playful All of the Other Reindeer by J. Otto Siebold, or the tender tale of the friendly beast based on the old English carol by Tommy De Paola, it's our wish here at Rachel's World that this season your lives will be filled with the joy, hope, and love contained in all the wonderful stories of the season. 
Rachel's World. All month long on Worlds Awaiting, we've been reading from Charles Dickens' classic A Christmas Carol, and we can read it on the radio because it's old enough to be in the public domain. That means anyone else can use it and adapt it too. Today, I am joined in studio with a couple of experts on those adaptations for movie and TV, Jeff Simpson and Cole Wissinger, who are the hosts of our BYU radio show, Screen Cleaning. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I, I am excited to visit with you about these adaptations. So first to start out, what is your favorite? What is like the pinnacle when it comes to movie or TV adaptations of A Christmas Carol? This was really tough for me because up until recently, I hadn't seen very many adaptations of A Christmas Carol. And I forced you to watch right. them. <laughs> we did some research. Can so, you call it research? Yeah. Yes, total research. So by default, I probably would have just said Muppets Christmas Carol, Right. But then I decided to sit down and watch one that I've always heard, oh, you've got to check this one out. And it's the 1984 version with George C. Scott as Scrooge. And I – okay. I think I did ultimately end up circling back to Muppet's Christmas Carol only because it's the only one of the adaptations that – is heartwarming and that brings me to tears almost and makes me want to go out and be a better person. Having said that, I do feel like George C. Scott is the best Scrooge that I've seen. And I've seen the version with Alistair Sim. I know everybody loves him. But George C. Scott as Scrooge, he takes the entire movie before he finally makes that little switch at the end, and it is powerful. Well, I will say that there is another one that is heartwarming and another one that, that makes me cry, and that is the 1970s musical adaptation with just Finney. called Scrooge with Albert Finney. Ah. And in my estimation, Albert Finney is like the consummate actor of the world, and I, you know, I love Albert Finney and anything that Daddy Albert Finney Warbucks. did. Yes, I love anything that he did. But one of the other reasons I like that one, and I think that it makes the same thing as The Muppets Christmas Carol, is because they both have music. Mm. And they both have music as integrated pieces of them. So it, they're more like musicals, right? It's not just soundtrack music. Right. They actually have musical performances. And in an interesting way, I think that actually gives that more heartwarming emphasis that you're talking about, that some of those more dramatic versions that just have score music behind them don't get. And you you need that in Albert Finney's version because the end is about a dark of a turn as Scrooge ever takes departing from the novel's interpretation yeah. as well, right? Yeah. yeah, and it does. Those those two depart a little bit from it because of the music, I think, in some ways. I, I think yeah. you bring up a good point, though, because in my opinion, Cole's a little surprised that I feel this way. I feel that Bob Cratchit is kind of the hero of A Christmas Carol. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's that's an interesting literary analysis point there too. Because <laughs> I've heard I've heard and read literary analysis where they say that he really is the hero. He is the one that has been mistreated probably the most, arguably the most, by Ebenezer Scrooge. So he, of anybody, would have so much of a reason. To just hate him, to back, you know, talk behind his back, to speak ill in front of his children of him. And yet, no, through and through, he is a good person. 
And come what may, even Ebenezer Scrooge is not going to destroy his spirit. Well, I think that one of the things there fundamentally, when we think from a literary perspective, we don't usually make the villain the hero of a story. It's very rare that the villain is the hero. And so that's what makes it hard with Scrooge is because he he's the title character, but he is the villain, essentially. And yes. so it it is dissonant for us as a reader watcher because we're not used to the villain being that hero. Yet so yeah. much more rewarding when he's finally redeemed. Exactly. <laughs> However, and yeah. you know, I, I think Cole and I have talked about this quite a bit too. The difference between Bob Cratchit and Ebenezer Scrooge is Bob Cratchit is a good person. He's a good person because he wants to be a good person. Ebenezer Scrooge is kind of he's compelled, compelled to be mm. humble yes. and compelled yes. to turn into this good guy. So this is one of my favorite things that the Muppet Christmas Carol does which is my favorite version, and it departs from the novel as well, is it makes the ghost of Christmas present a really happy and and joyful guy as opposed to ever scaring Scrooge. In so many of these other versions, um, the ghost of Christmas present has a scene where he unveils his robe and these two destitute children, he chastises Scrooge and gets in his face, whereas in A Muppet Christmas Carol, he shows Scrooge for the first time in his life, that he can have friends. And this is what love on Christmas Day, very in the moment, in the present kind of thing for the Ghost of Christmas Present to do. Um, And he shows him that that love is here for you, Scrooge. You just have to open yourself up to it. And then the Ghost of Christmas yet to come scares him a little bit. (laughs) But Yeah. Well, and part of it, too, is you've got to look at the historical, because when the novel was published, that kind of Victorian sense is very much that scary, you know, here's the moralistic. straight. You know, we're going to be didactic and press it down, that type of thing. And Dickens, as a writer, is very much that way, right? He, As an author, he's that way. And that's one of the things I love about the movie and film adaptations is they modernize it, right? They take it out of that kind of stodgy Victorian-esque era and put it in a context that makes it more universal. And I, I know there are people out there who will say the book move version or the movie version is better, but I am one of these people that says they're different forms of storytelling, they're different storytellers, and so you can't compare the two, right? You cannot compare the two. But if we were going to compare the two, what what are your thoughts along, along those lines? You know, so, Jeff... Had you read the book? Have you before? read the book before? You... I had read the book before I had seen a lot of these movies. I ha- this year is the very first time that I've gone back Yay, and cool. read <laughs> a Christmas Carol in its entirety. You know, it, I could see it either way because, well, let me talk about some of the the adaptations that have strayed pretty far from the source material. One being Muppets Christmas Carol, which is actually pretty close, but in some of the major plot points, it does deviate pretty heavily, uh, and I love that one. Then there's the other side of the coin where you have the Bill Murray Scrooged film um, <laughs> that completely goes far away from the Charles Dickens novel. The story's there in spirit. Yeah. Right. But... And it's it's a modern telling of, of uh, A Christmas Carol. I do not like that film in the least. I think it is an ugly, hateful film. And by the end of the movie, I don't feel like he has – become a different person. I feel like he's still the sarcastic jerk that he was throughout the whole movie. Um, you know, I it, one thing I will say is is I think a lot of filmmakers are scared to deviate too far from the source material. There's a reverence in a lot of these ab- adaptations because 
they're pretty much all the same. I mean, and the rough thing is about this, as I read it for the first time, was that Dickens puts a lot of dialogue, a lot more dialogue than I'm used to reading in there. And so when you're adapting, he already wrote it, so just act it and there you have it so mm-hmm. i i mean i'm so familiar with a muppet christmas carol and george c scott and patrick stewart who we haven't mentioned and all these versions that when i read it i could quote it because i'd already heard the dialogue so many times yeah. and one other thing that i'll add to that question or in my answer is that as great as the novel is or as great as this ghost story is There are two adaptations that help answer some questions that I never felt were answered in the book, one of them being the Alistair Sim uh, version, the other being the George C. Scott version. Questions about Scrooge's relationship with his father, questions about Scrooge's relationship with Fezziwig, and even questions uh, about um, Scrooge's relationship with his nephew Fred. Mm -hmm. By the way... Fred is never named in the book, and yet all of these he other is, adaptations, though. when? You had told me that, and so I went back and checked. <laughs> really? So I would be prepared for this conversation. Okay. He's always Scrooge's nephew when the narrator is speaking. Okay. But when we're actually peeking in on him during Ghost to Christmas Present, Fred's wife calls him Fred. There we go. That's not my so big question, though. So the narrator never says, like, Fred said this, but his wife says, oh, Fred, go do this. Right. Yeah, but those those two adaptations really help clear up some of those questions that I've always had that I didn't feel were answered in the book. Yeah. And that's what I think adaptations do a great job of is extending and deepening mm-hmm. our understanding and bringing, you know, different ideas of how we view the character. And that's why I love having all of these different actors portray Scrooge in yeah. different ways because we see him in different ways. And, you know, even Bill Murray, we we see Scrooge in a very different way <laughs> because of because of his less than stellar film. Right. And I love yeah. Bill Murray yeah. in his other films, but I hate his Scrooge. Yeah. It's but, just, he's yeah. too mean. He. <laughs> yeah. He's Scroogey. Yeah. It's just, it's an ugly film. <laughs> well, I'm glad there's some films that you don't like. That's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a very good thing about all of this kind of stuff. When we talk about this film, particularly for kids, right, when we talk about for children, what are your thoughts along that line? Are there some of these adaptations that are just like not kid-friendly or some that are kid-friendly? I, I think the Disney ones and the Muppet ones probably are more kid-friendly, but what are your thoughts? There's an animation special that actually brings back Alistair Sim, and when you think animation, you should think kids, but this is the scariest version that I've ever mm. seen. The Chuck Jones was an animator on it. He's got Looney Tunes under his belt. It should be kidsy, but it is not. It is the Ghost of Christmas past is this weird overlay um terrifying kind of three heads in one thing the ghost of christmas future who's always scary is even more so in this looks like a grim reaper and <laughs> so watch out not all animation is created equal. <laughs> right so true. and you know speaking of animation this was a computer animated film but the 2009 robert zemeckis version that starred jim carrey there are actually some pretty terrifying parts yeah. in that too and i don't know that i would show my kids that and just not even not even like in your face, this is supposed to be scary. But just the the, the uh, motion capture facial expressions of the actors that aren't meant to be scary are actually quite unsettling. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are some that I probably wouldn't show my kids, and which is why I always circle back to the Muppets Christmas Carol. Because as much as I do love the George C. Scott version, I don't know that that is one that I'm going to sit down with my kids every year and, and watch and rewatch. But Muppets is always a safe bet. And like you said, 
one of the big part of the one of the big reasons it is so heartwarming is the music by Paul Williams and it's gets in your head and it makes you so happy. That that is some glorious Oh yeah. some glorious music, yeah, cuz I I love the Albert Finney music and that is some glorious music and amazing amazing music, but you know, rivaling that is is the Muppets Christmas Carol. And I I really think that that's interesting to me that my two favorites are like musicals and yeah. I I don't know if I I guess I need to psychoanalyze myself as to why why that music is so important, particularly for that story, because I don't like any of the straight versions. It It's so mm. hard for me to watch the films where there's no it's just score music. Right. It it is meaningless to me. And I actually don't like the book very much. I've read it several really? times. And it's just it's not to me. It's like not Dickens best. It's not. Or, well, it and doesn't hold together as a story. Being yeah, didactic. It's, it's very didactic. It's so see through yeah. that this yeah. is exactly what he's trying to teach you, and mm-hmm. here is the lesson with no like real literary metaphor on top yeah. of it. It's just yeah. be nicer. Yeah, but I, I think there's a reason why there are so many different adaptations of it, especially around this time of the year. We we come back and revisit the story because. We all want to be that person who is given a second chance on life, and we've we've wronged people before. We've been wronged before, and we've made mistakes that we wish we could take back. And I was thinking about this book a little more this morning. I thought, you know what? In a way, even though there's a great message, there's a great happy ending, it's also kind of a tragic ending because in hindsight, you see— my goodness, he not only did he lose decades on his life that he can never get back, he lost relationships that he can never get back. So it's kind of bittersweet in that, you know, he can change from here on out, but he'll never get that time back. No matter how many ghosts from different times come and visit him. Yeah. And I think that that sense of redemption and being able to change is part and parcel of the season, right? And yeah. it just makes it it makes it a very universal story about And as we creep up on the new year as yeah. well, mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. let's change from here on out. Yeah. And then we forget yeah. by February and we have and to we watch move on to, we got Yeah, we got to watch the movie again in November or December. <laughs> so we can so we can re yeah. address all of this all of this fabulous stuff because yeah, it really is a very timeless story in that way that it has this kind of universal appeal that we all want to do. And I think that's why it has been so adapted. I mean, I dare say that it's probably the most adapted story out there. It and is up I, there. Yeah, I think it would be way up there. Do we have time for me to mention one more adaptation that might be uh, repeat viewing for us every year at Christmas? Go for it. It's not a straight adaptation of A Christmas Carol, but it is called The Man Who Invented Christmas, which just came out last year. It was uh, released. It didn't get a a wide release, so it kind of disappeared. It's on Amazon Prime right now, but it's about Charles Dickens writing A Christmas Carol. And the way it's portrayed in the film is that Christmas is kind of fizzling out. It's not really popular and... And he's, you know, working on this really tight deadline, putting putting all of his money in on it. And it has a lot to do with with his relationship with his own father. And the cool thing about this and the unique thing about this is that you get a version of Scrooge, who in this film is portrayed by Christopher Plummer, that appears as Charles Dickens is writing the novel and he's kind of conjuring him up. 
and, you know, discovering his personality and discovering the other characters in this book. And they kind of just pop up as he's imagining them. And it's a really unique way to tell this story. Also with a very similar message, you know what? My dad may have wronged me. He may not have been the best dad in the world, but I can forgive him. I can get over my the beef that I have with him. And, and we I can, can change. Yeah, I can out. change, and, right? Yeah. I love that movie too, and it yeah. didn't it didn't get the accolades or the no. viewing that it should have. I think it was one of those under the radar ones that I love too. <laughs> so great to mention that. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us today. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. Jeff and Cole are the hosts of our show here on BYU Radio called Screen Cleaning. It can be heard Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio and anytime on their podcast. If you haven't had enough of our Dickens conversation, please check in with them because they're going to talk more about it on an upcoming episode. Now, if you want even more Charles Dickens, let's finish up our reading of A Christmas Carol with Mr. Scrooge's interaction with the third and final ghost. The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which this spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. But for this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him, and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more, for the spirit neither spoke nor moved. "'I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come,' said Scrooge. The spirit answered not, but pointed onward with its hand. "'You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us,' Scrooge pursued. "'Is that so, spirit?' The upper portion of the garment was contracted for an instant in its folds, as if the spirit had inclined its head. That was the only answer he received. Although well used to ghostly company by this time, Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him, and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. The spirit paused a moment as observing his condition and giving him time to recover. But Scrooge was all the worse for this. It thrilled him with a vague, uncertain horror to know that, behind the dusky shroud, there were ghostly eyes intently fixed upon him, while he, though he stretched his own to the utmost, could see nothing but a spectral hand and one great heap of black. "'Ghost of the future!' he exclaimed. "'I fear you more than any specter I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was—' I am prepared to bear your company, and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It gave him no reply. The hand was pointed straight before them. Lead on, said Scrooge. Lead on. The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on, spirit. and married couples do so many things together, especially around the holidays. Today, I have on the phone a couple that writes books together, Carolyn and Mark Beener. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
I am so excited to have both of you here today to visit about your books and all of the wonderful things that you create for children. But to start out, because it's Christmas time, I love one of your books for this time of the season, and that is particularly starting with your Snowman at Night book. I know when I've been um, in your speeches and other things, you've told some kind of the history of how this book came to be. And I'd love if you'd start by sharing that with our listeners. So where was the inspiration for Snowman at Night? You know, we're we're lucky because we had something happen in our lives that kind of triggered the inspiration for that book. And interestingly, something happened at the same time. And Mark began another Christmas book. So that year he actually did two. He did Christmas Day in the morning and Snowman at Night. And that was an idea that came to us because we had a friend who had stopped by one winter evening when Mark had built a snowman out in front with the kids and was going to come to the door, but the house was dark. And so they saw the snowman and decided to move it. And they moved it across the yard turned it around to face the front door and it was holding a can of soup and apparently had had a loaf of bread, which was missing in the morning when we saw it. But we came out the door and saw this snowman right in front of our door, our snowman that had actually moved. And we would tell people this funny thing that happened to us. And it sparked the idea for a little poem that became Snowman at Night. That's wonderful. I I love that one of the things that this shows is how much your writing and your illustration draws from your own family experience. Is that typical for the work that you do? I think you can't help but be influenced by things in your own background, whether it's, you know, for me, probably, I think I would use language and words drawing from a lot of things I've read. If you look at Mark's illustrations and if you knew our family, you would see a lot of things in them that are just part of our lives. Uh, Snowman at Night, when we, when he did that book, we were actually living in Sugar House and the street that you see is almost a, a replica of the street we lived on. And some of his other books will have, you know, family members in or people from our past or, you know, the place we were living at the time. All of that makes its way into the art. So for us, it's a memory, too, and kind of fun to go back and look. That's a, a wonderful way to kind of record that for your family as well. One of the things I love about all of your work and the ones that you've mentioned, plus all of the many that we haven't even mentioned yet, is how integral the words and the art go together. I think that that's such an important part of your work, um, how those two things play off of each other. So as a team, how does that work for you? How do you work together to make sure that the text and the illustrations and vice versa all work together? to tell a complete story. There are several times where I'll go down and look at the picture and I'll say, Mark, it does not say that in the art. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll have to go back and change it or I have to change the words, but I'm going to let him address There that are one. times you get kind of caught up in this, the picture in the picture and you don't realize that you cut a straight away from the text a little bit. <laughs> so you have to be careful and go back and read it on occasion to make sure you're back in line with what's written. And sometimes I've had Carrie even change the text a little bit to kind of fit with what I've done visually. But that's one of the fun things about doing children's book art is you have a lot of freedom. And so you can you can kind of do things that are sometimes a little more creative than you feel you can do if you're doing like a commercial illustration job or something else. Mark, describe that a little bit more for us. I love that sense of freedom. What is that freedom? Can you describe that a little more for us? Well, when I was back in school, I'd have 
my professors say, do you want to go and be a commercial artist or do you want to be a fine artist? And I kind of think, yeah, I want to do both. And so for me, in a way, it's, it is kind of, I look at it as, as feeding the, the fine artist in me that I'm able to have freedom to not have my hand completely guided with what I'm doing, but I have a lot of freedom that way. And so it makes it um, very satisfying to me. Um, a lot of the illustrators today now for, for a number of reasons are doing things with the computer. They can do it so much quicker. I still like to, to pull out the old oil paints and, and do it the old fashioned way just because I like to have a, a finished original when I'm done. But it's, it's a little harder when you're doing it on the computer that you can't have that. You can still print from it, but you can't have a, an actual original piece. I love that insight into the work of the artist. I think that that is quite amazing because once you send that work out into the world, it becomes the readers and the readers love it. And I know that I have had experiences with children who have read all of your books and who just have such a wonderful heartfelt response to them. So speak a little bit about your reader response. How, how have readers responded to your work, particularly your wonderful Christmas works? And what kind of interaction do you have with your readers over these books? There's a lot of grown-ups who enjoy the books because they can just look at the art. The text might be simple, but they're enjoying the pictures. And then, of course, he puts hidden pictures in, and so there's always fun things to go back and find. And kids like that, parents like that. Um, we hear we hear good things um, mostly now through emails through our website. People will comment on something. We do get letters of frustration from people who can't find a dinosaur hidden in the art on a certain page or the, the rabbits and the mother will be saying, we've been looking for five days. Where's the dinosaur? You need some <laughs> so cheat sheets. But I think the, the overall response is, it's very positive. And I, and a lot of people have said that these are books that they bring out every year or keep out all the time. Or um, Just today we were told of a couple of Christmas day in the morning and Merry Christmas, Mr. Mouse, that were people's favorite Christmas books that they bring out in the area, which is wonderful to for us to hear. Well, I know that your books, your Christmas books, are a part of the favorites that I bring out every year for my nieces and nephews when they come to visit. So I can attest to the fact that they they definitely are favorites. I do know that you are parents and grandparents, so maybe speak a little bit to the extension of that. What are some of those favorite Christmas stories that you all bring out into your family every year? You know, I have a, a shelf. I didn't collect. A lot of people will collect and wrap and have fun traditions where they open a book every day. I did that one year and that was enough wrapping <laughs> for me. <laughs> but I do have some favorite books. In fact, Mark and I both have on our shelves some books that we had from our childhood, both Christmas and not, that are picture books. Not a ton. I mean, that wasn't the era where every kid had 150 books in their room which is more of what happens today where kids are flooded with books, but we had books, both of us growing up and our Christmas books. We have some traditional ones. We both have interestingly that we brought with us. When we were married this big paper kind of oversized copy of the night before Christmas that had kind of velveteen on the cover that I thought was so cool to put my fingers on. Santa's hat was velvety and, Mark had the same book. And so we have two copies of that. We, we have 
course, all of our Christmas books are on the shelf. And then we have some others. I have a funny Sid Hoff one that's probably 45 years old that is fun about a chicken at Christmas. Um, of course, we love that. What are some other ones? We love Jonathan Toomey. We have a little book about a mouse that we have David Shannon's Christmas Extravaganza. We, they're just a shelf full. But because we have a big family and it started when they were very young, we read to them every night for years and years and years and would make trips to the library weekly and kind of have, that's been a part of something that we've loved. And I especially, I really like reading aloud. Not everybody does. I love it. And when I could go to my kids' classrooms, if I could talk the teacher into letting me come and read for half an hour every week, it was kind of the highlight of my week. And I'd take in books to read because I feel like hearing language, even when you're very young, helps you communicate. You may or may not have a reading problem later, but you will have words that you can use and you'll be a better communicator the more you hear. And so I'm a big believer in, in reading aloud. That is underscores everything I believe too. I'm a big believer in reading aloud and especially around the holidays. I just think it's a wonderful thing to cuddle up together and, and read a wonderful story together as, as a family. It, it is a way to connect and unify us together. So tell us a little bit about what's coming next for you guys. What, what can we expect out of your studio in the upcoming years? <laughs> we do actually have another snowman book coming out next fall and it's been several years. So it's kind of fun. Um, that's something that of all the books that Mark has done, probably the ones that he's enjoyed the most are the snowman books. And so we were really happy to have this project work out. So that's, that's the next thing that's coming is another snowman book. So excited. That is going to be wonderful because I know I love them and I know there are many people out there who love them as well. Thank you so much, Carolyn and Mark, for this time today. It has been an honor speaking to you about your work and about all of the things that are a part of your life and your reading life. So thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Thank you for having us, Rachel. Thank you. Carolyn, along with her writing partner and husband, Mark, are the authors of the Snowman series of picture books, among many others. Now, for one more time this month, let's turn it over to World's Awaiting producer Natalie Anderson as she continues her series of Christmas traditions around the world. As the leaves fall from the trees and the air becomes chill, we all know that the holidays are soon to come upon us. No matter when or how you celebrate, you have certain traditions that you cherish, and many of the traditions that we have grown to love have roots in our heritages from around the world. This week, we are focusing on the traditions of Mexico, Central America, and South America. In Mexico, Christmas is steeped in traditions varying from indigenous, Spanish, and American influences, as well as some traditions that are purely Mexican. The celebrations start in early December and last until January 6th. During this time, you are likely to see nativities and Christmas markets everywhere, as well as poinsettias, a flower that is native to Mexico. Before Christmas, there are often stalls in the markets where children can meet Santa Claus and take a picture with him. After Christmas, it is the wise men that the children are able to meet until Three Kings Day. Often, nativity plays called Los Pastores are performed detailing the nativity story from the point of view of the shepherds. It shows their journey of trying to find the baby Jesus. 
There are also a series of celebrations called Las Pasadas, with processions depicting the journey of Mary and Joseph searching for the inn. On Christmas Eve, the families go to Midnight Mass, and following that, they have an enormous feast and celebrate with sparklers and fireworks. Christmas Day is usually much calmer as the families recover from the festivities of the night before. In El Salvador, despite the red and green markets and the ads of Santa Claus, they try to focus on the true meaning of Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ. Instead of writing a letter to Santa Claus, many children write letters to the baby Jesus. They celebrate with fireworks, sparklers, and Roman candles, and then open their presents at midnight on Christmas Eve. Christmas in Colombia is also more centered on religious beliefs. Just as in El Salvador, presents are brought by the baby Jesus. Celebrations start on December 7th with the Dia de las Veletas, or the Day of the Candles. At night, the streets, houses, and balconies are covered with candles, lanterns, and lights. Starting on December 16th, families celebrate Novena, which are nine successive days of prayers with the last prayer being said on Christmas Eve. Songs are sung, nativity scenes are set up, and games are played. On Christmas Eve, families will open their presents at midnight and then stay up until dawn talking, singing, and playing games. Fireworks shows are also very common. In Brazil, they celebrate many of the same traditions as we do in America. They set up Christmas trees and lights, and even though it is summer when they celebrate, there are often wintry themes that sneak their way into their songs and traditions. In some cities, there are competitions to see whose decorations are the best in the town, inside and outside of the house. Nativity scenes are the most popular decoration. The Christmas celebration mainly happens on Christmas Eve with midnight mass and gift-giving, while Christmas Day is reserved mainly for rest and relaxation. Although we may have missed a few traditions, hopefully you and your family learned something about how other cultures celebrate. This is Natalie Anderson signing off and wishing you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from Worlds Awaiting. Christmas time is perfect for stories, and especially those stories about those who do a lot of hard work in the winter, including our snowplows. Today, we're excited to welcome Laura Kohler, author and librarian to the show, who has a wonderful book called The Little Snowplow. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Rachel, for inviting me to the program. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Well, I am so excited for you to tell us about your book. So to start off, tell us a little bit about the book so our audience can be introduced to it. So The Little Snowplow features a spunky plow who joins the Mighty Mountain Road Crew. And all of the tracks on the Mighty Mountain Road Crew are big except, of course, for the little snowplow. And the bigger trucks doubt his ability to do the job. Um, he trains hard, though. Um, when the going gets tough, this plow really gets going. It's a fun book to read to kids. I love watching their eyes get really big as they're listening to the story, <laughs> and it's getting more exciting. <laughs> so... It, it, it's a fun story. 
It certainly sounds like a fun story, particularly for us around here in Utah. We have snow plows on the street all the time. So I love that when children's books take the commonplace that children will experience or understand and then make it into something that has an idea and a story around it. So how did this story come to be? What was what was your inspiration? Uh, well, the idea came to me when I was traveling in Idaho, actually. Um, I was returning from Grand Targhee, and I was driving down a very straight rural road um, through the bare dirt of potato fields, and the clouds were low and gray, but there wasn't a snowflake in sight. And driving down the road toward me came this little snowplow. It just looked like it was out looking for snow. Where's the snow? When will it snow? And in one way or another, I think an affinity for vehicles has been passed down in my family. Uh, For instance, when I was talking with my grandfather about his life history, one of the ways he encapsulated it was through a life list of all the cars he'd owned. And you could tell that he'd been attached to them. So to me, some vehicles just seem to have a personality. And this snowplow driving down an Idaho road was one of them. Of course, Jake Parker brought, he's the illustrator of the book. He brought the little snowplow to life wonderfully with his amazing illustrations. And Jake, by the way, is also local to Utah. It's such a fun combination that we have two local authors coming together to make this such a delightful story. And I think perfect any time of the year, particularly, as you say, a lot of children have this affinity to machines. And I know lots of big machines are very important, especially to to a certain age of boy. They love these big machines. So this book is that kind of that perfect pitch for them. Were you thinking about that kind of specific audience when you were writing this book or or was it more of a general idea? Um, I wasn't really thinking. I, th- I think it's a book that has appeal for both boys and girls. Um, I was the kind of kid who always had her nose in a book. And I think in some ways, that's the kid I write for. But I also write for the kid who isn't captured by reading in hopes that they'll discover the thrill of the story and the places it can take them. I've seen this have broad appeal for different audiences. The story is a little longer than, than you know, some of the very short picture books, but it can go from a pretty young child all the way through ages seven or eight. I I do like that this book has such a broad range. And one of the other things that struck me when I was reading through is that it has a wonderful kind of shareability to it. I think it would be a wonderful one for parents to to gather around the family and to share together and to be able to read aloud and, and share that with the beautiful illustrations as well. That kind of community that comes around story. Is that something that you do with your family? Do you all read together? Um, we did when I was when I was growing up. Yes, um, definitely. My mom was a, a big reader. And she um, passed that love of reading on to us. Um, I think another thing with this book is that it has an interactive component to it. And 
when kids um, are maybe a little bit antsy, there are things in the book that they can do. Um, the, the snowplow, for example, has a training ritual. He makes the light on top go around and he blows his horn, beep, beep, and he drives forward and back. And then he raises, raises and lowers his plow. And I think what, when I'm doing story times with the kids with this book, I have them, I, I set them up ahead of time and say, okay, we're going to practice. And then while we're reading the story, they can do that along with the plow too. Such a great example of that shareability that we were talking about. This book just has that wonderful kind of interactive, shareable quality and is certainly meant to be shared across generations and across ages. As as a librarian and as someone who does story times for kids, particularly this time of year, what are some of your other favorites that you like to share with kids? Um, I, I've got a couple of I, examples that come to mind. Um, Big Snow uh, is one. It's by author, illustrator, Jonathan Bean. And it's another book about someone hoping for a lot of snow. Uh, David's mom is busy with holiday housework, but David's focused on a predicted snowstorm. He helps mom out with the chores, but he can't help getting distracted and he has to keep going back outside to check things out. Um, It's a charming story with illustrations to match. Um, Snow by author, illustrator Yuri Shulovitz is an almost wordless book about a child who's certain it's going to snow, never mind the adults who believe otherwise. Uh, It actually makes a fun read aloud. You wouldn't think that with being a wordless book. And I think sometimes parents tend to shy away from those wordless books because they're not sure what to do with them, but they make a, they're a great way for a child to help develop their own narrative skills by helping to tell the story. Some of my favorites too. I love, I love this list. <laughs> it's a great yeah. list. Yeah. The Miracle of Jonathan Toomey. Oh, um, beautiful book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. By Susan Wojciechowski. Yeah. It's illustrated by PJ Lynch. It's one of my favorite Christmas picture books. Um, an anniversary edition of that book was released in 2015, which I was very happy to see. Um, Jonathan is a gruff and reclusive woodcarver who has isolated himself after the death of his wife and baby, but he's also the best woodcarver around, and the widow McDowell and her son Thomas ask him to carve a nativity to replace a special one that they lost when they moved to town. As Jonathan carves the set and Thomas influences the proceedings, a relationship develops between the woodcarver and the boy and his mother. It makes a beautiful and gentle story and a very satisfying ending. Um, Just, I I can add one more, um, How to Catch Santa by Jean Reagan. She's actually also a local Utah author. It's a non-religious take on the Christmas holiday with plenty of ideas for catching the jolly elf in action, as well as a focus on family togetherness. Um, this book will provide an injection of fun into your holiday celebrations. 
Oh, Laura, so amazing. I love that list. I think between your book and those wonderful other books, this is such a great connections for stories for the holidays. Thank you so much for taking some time today to come and share with us your book and all of these other great books on the list. Thank you. Rachel, thanks for having me. Laura Kohler is a librarian and first-time author from right here in Utah. Now, let's talk with some other librarians around the librarian's table about kids, books, and life. Today, I have a group of student librarians I work with to chat about our favorite Christmas books. We're in studio today chatting with some of my very favorite people. Welcome, ladies. Hello. It's nice to be here. Yeah, good to be here. I am so excited today because we're going to chat about Christmas books. And I think for me, these have just a really special place in my heart. And I know we were chatting the other day, Emily, about um, about why. So tell the audience what we were talking about. I think that like holiday-themed books, like especially Christmas, they have a special place in our heart because it's not something that we necessarily read all year. I know that there are exceptions and people like to read those kinds of books all year, but it adds to the anticipation of the season. Like we're we're indulging in things that we don't always indulge in. We make more Christmas cookies. We we go sledding and we do different things that we don't do. And part of that is bringing out all the Christmas books and, and reading those all a little bit more and like over and over and just kind of we get more into the season that way. And so I think that just adds to the specialness of the time. Yeah, that they're they're very unique to this time of year and they only come out that one time of year. So they're extra special. I mean, one of the things I love about it, too, is the sense that Christmas books have a different kind of story imagination than other holidays. Right. Because like the Fourth of July, it's like a real, real stories about real people who you know, made our country. And even Thanksgiving is like, you know, real stories about real people, um, even though they may be fictionalized to a certain extent, right? There's some questions there about that. But, you know, those types of things, those types of holidays are very much grounded in reality. But Christmas is like grounded in the imaginary and reality in such a wonderful combination, which I think is so fun. And I love, my favorite are like Santa Claus stories, right? So anytime I have Santa Claus stories or Santa Claus appears in a story, I just love that because I love that sense of whimsy and imagination that comes to the holidays. So that that's my favorite. And I love that extra sense of whimsy and imagination that comes to it. So Taylor, what, what are some of your favorites? Um, when I was growing up, I had this really cool illustrated edition of um, The Night Before Christmas. And um, I wish I could remember which edition it was so I could go out and get it for myself because I loved it so much. But um, it was just like my, really special for me because my dad would read it to me and he had this like great rhythmic voice for, you know, all the rhyming and everything. And so it was something that I looked forward to every year. Um, he would read it to me on Christmas Eve. So <laughs> I just I just love the story. And I, every time I read The Night Before Christmas now, it just makes me think back on those memories. And it's just really nostalgic. And that's what Emily was saying, right? I mean, that's that's such a good example of what you were showing, that this is a nostalgic special time where these books yeah. connect us and fundamentally unique ways. I mean, do you have one, Emily, that's yeah, special not, for you? Well, I actually, the one that I was thinking of is one that I even just found last year. And it kind of goes off of what you're saying about people have this new creative license. Like, I don't know, you can bring the same principle that's taught through other um, mediums, but they, when you can put the Christmas theme onto it, it makes it almost 
more exciting and you're like, oh, it's Definitely. cuter <laughs> yes, because yes. it's Christmas and winter. <laughs> so one that I found was it's called The Most Perfect Snowman. And so this has a lot of themes about um, like it, it mentions on bullying and empathy and giving and um, ha- like realizing that who you are inside matters more on the outside. And it's just about this snowman that was made on the first snowfall, but nobody had given him hat or gloves or scarf or even a carrot nose and all the other snowmen would make fun of him. And he was just so sad. That's all he wanted was to have those things. And some kids walked by one day and saw that he didn't have those things and gave them to the, him. And then there ended up being a blizzard and this little bunny came by and he ended up giving his things to the bunny to stay warm and then giving his nose to the bunny because it was hungry just so it could like survive the night. And that it kind of ends with, and now he was the most perfect snowman. So it's just kind of realizing that it isn't about what's on the outside, but what's in the inside. And that's a theme that's taught so like in a bunch of children's books, but with that, like, winter theme onto it. I was like, this is the cutest thing ever. <laughs> so I, I got it for yeah. all my siblings for Christmas last year, which for my nieces and nephews, yeah. like to, to give to them, to their kids. And it was just so fun. Really great. The books are so great to give at Christmas. <laughs> I and know, they have a, really good themes. So that's thing. They're so great. But you know, that, that most perfect snowman reminds me of one of your favorites, Megan, because you were talking about... Yes, I was talking about the best Christmas pageant yes. ever. <laughs> and those two connect to me. <laughs> they do, the, They yeah. have that misfit kind of context. So why do you like the best Christmas pageant ever? Yeah, I like that one. My mom gave it to me to read when I was... I think it was the Christmas I was turning 10. And... So it was one of her favorites that she had read, and I, you know, I thought it was really funny at first because this misfit family, they just do so many weird things when they're practicing for their Christmas pageant, and they have what seems to be like no reverence for the Christmas story. But, you know, I was laughing the whole time I was reading it, but then when I got to the end when they finally put on their Christmas pageant and those kids that don't seem to have a lot of love or a lot of affection going on in their home recognize that just, I don't know, just they... it you see them kind of like they get it in the moment. They get it. They understand what Christmas kind of is supposed to mean. And that is just transcendent of everything that they've been raised to do. And so I love that moment where the spirit of Christmas, I guess, touches even these roughhousey, rowdy, awful kids. So <laughs> Yeah. And I love that sense of spirit of Christmas. And that goes back to what you were saying, Emily, about this is just a great time to give books. Because I think stories like this embody the spirit of Christmas. They just embody that spirit of like kind of taking or getting rid of like all of the selfish things that you have inside yourself and just trying to mm-hmm. focus more on others. You know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a Christian thing either yeah. that has to do with Christmas. It's just about focusing more on others. Yeah. And I think thematically, that's what most of the stories of Christmas have to do, right? right. Focusing on that kind of sense of others. I think that articulates it really well because it does a great a great context. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And especially if it's a book that um, has been close to your heart, like all of the ones that we were talking about growing up, um, it just makes that more meaningful when you gift it to someone else and then they can, you know, experience those same kind of feelings. Yeah. And that sharing, that mm-hmm. love and sharing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what did your family think of the most perfect Oh, they loved it. <laughs> and like all my nieces and nephews love it. And I think it kind of goes, I, I mentioned how I thought it's just cuter because it was Christmas, but maybe it goes back to what you guys saying, like the spirit of Christmas, because these lessons just resonate so deeply with the spirit of Christmas, it almost, it just becomes more like the book. And if we were just talking about giving or being who you are on the inside, because it was like, snowing and a snowman and I don't know it just makes you think more about Christmas and getting into that mindset during Christmas I think that's 
why you love it more. Perfect, perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Megan, Emily, and Taylor, and thanks to all of our guests today. First, we talked about adaptations of A Christmas Carol with Jeff Simpson and Cole Wissinger. Then, Mark and Carolyn Beener shared their Snowmen series with us. Finally, we talked to Laura Kohler about publishing her first book and other holiday favorites. We also wrapped up our holiday features for the month. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Thank you for exploring with us, and have a very Merry Christmas.